Coming up today, we delve into golf's existential crisis and have a very serious chat about dogs. You're listening to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Matt Reynolds. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when an international coalition of children's health advocates called on Facebook to abandon plans to build a version of Instagram for kids. A leaked memo recently revealed that Facebook had, and I quote, identified youth work as a priority for Instagram as Facebook works to add more and more people to its platform. It was also the week when the Irish Data Protection Commission launched an investigation into the leak of 500 million people's phone numbers from Facebook. The data was first leaked in 2019 before appearing for sale recently. However, the investigation may focus on why Facebook didn't tell its users about the leak at the time. And finally, this was the week when it was revealed that researchers have created monkey-human chimera embryos by injecting human stem cells into macaque embryos. They say the work could one day allow them to grow human organs for transplant but the research raises ethical concerns. Matt Burgess, just to pick up on the Facebook data leak with you, this isn't an obsession that you have with Irish data protection regulation. The, the reason that it's particularly interesting that Ireland is looking into this is that's where Facebook is based in Europe, right? Yeah, it is. So um, the uh, a lot of the tech companies, including Facebook, have their European headquarters in Ireland. Um, and as the uh, under sort of like an agreement as part of the GDPR, which came into force in 2018, the Irish data protection regulator is the sort of like lead uh, data protection regulator that looks at the, the tech companies. Um, there are sort of investigations across Europe by other other uh, data protection bodies in other countries, but uh, a lot of it all comes back to uh, the Irish uh, the commission, which has been basically inundated with complaints since GDPR uh, came into force a couple of years ago. It puts a lot of onus on just one regulator in a fairly small country. And, and this is a problem that Facebook really wants to make go away, right? Even though it's a huge breach of its systems, it sort of said, it was just data scraping, nothing untowards happened, please look the other way. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the sort of controversy around this particular case with people's phone numbers is because of uh, Facebook not really saying much or not saying anything at the time. And then uh, even now just saying it was sort of an old data breach. And um, I think that just with the huge figures and the and people's phone numbers, which are obviously very sensitive, um, it's what it's something that has sort of like uh, obviously sort of caused a bit of a stir, um, much more than Facebook would have liked, at least. Absolutely. It's a story that Facebook wants to go away that will not be going away. Okay, what did we learn this week? Matt Reynolds, I'll start with you. I learned that when a chimpanzee that has really good nutcracking skills moves to a group where the chimpanzees on the whole aren't very good at cracking nuts, that clever chimpanzee gradually drops its superior nutcracking skills, apparently in an effort to fit in. Researchers think that the benefits of closer social ties probably outweigh the benefits of cracking nuts more efficiently. But... How do how do they eat? Do they not go really really hungry? Is that a price worth paying for good friends? Well, 
They, yeah, they're, they're starving, but at least they're together. <laughs> no, they still can crack nuts, but it's essentially they might move to a group that is not very good at picking the right tools, so they pick rubbish rocks to crack nuts so it takes longer. Um, so they, st- they can still eat, they just get less nuts per hour, but apparently that's less important than fitting in with your friends. It'd be interesting if they found that the chimpanzees that were good at cracking nuts went and hid to successfully crack nuts before returning to the group. Um, and looking like they don't know how to crack nuts. I mean, that would be that would be a level above. It shows that that uh, they're, they're capable, I guess, of you know misleading their their friends, which is kind of the opposite of what we think at the moment. But uh, then you could have friends and nuts. You you could, but actually, if the other chimpanzees found out, maybe they'd kill them, and uh, <laughs> you know, it all just go terribly. Anyway, this is all completely spurious. Don't know anything about chimpanzees apart from the fact that they seem to make themselves a bit dumber to fit in with their friends. But who doesn't do that? quite right uh Hamid, what did you learn this week uh, i just want to say that i love the metric nuts per hour and i think that we should use that instead of <laughs> do you hear um so i learned that amazon picked up 50 million new prime subscribers during the pandemic as people turned to home delivery and streaming it now has more than 200 million people signed up for the service and it recorded its highest profits ever during 2020 as someone who hasn't used amazon at all since i think late 2018 this is deeply depressing also as someone who really likes watching football the fact that amazon has the rights to certain premier league games makes it incredibly incredibly difficult to continue my stubborn boycott of amazon but you can see it's successful right they're spending huge amounts of money on movies and tv shows and um and sports rights to try and lure people into into paying for amazon 50 million people is an awful lot are we all prime subscribers can i out you all i am. i actually have to say i, I was gonna say i mean you've actually reminded me to cancel my free prime <laughs> <laughs> subscription which is which is amazing timing because i actually i find that amazon signed me up to prime without me quite realizing why they'd done it or if i'd accepted it for some weird reason i wonder how much of that is this kind of automatic opt-in opt-in that people then you know opt out a month later or whenever it comes around to actually paying for it. You've been caught out by a checkbox. Never mind. All right. Our first story this week. Amit, golf. Tell us some more. Golf is a sport where you have to... uh, No, um, so we've been looking at golf this week. It's one of those sports that really loves traditions. Um, You know, there's all these dress codes and conventions. Even the governing body of the sport is called the Royal and Ancient but it is changing. There's new and better equipment, improved nutrition and training, which means that players can hit the ball longer, more accurately, and scores have been dropping. But there's a new breed of players that are basically smashing it really, really far, and it's causing something of a problem for golf course designers and for other players, Matt. That's right. And if there's one golfer who really epitomises this new approach to golf, his name is Bryson DeChambeau. At the end of 2019, he told the golfing press that he would come back next year and he would look like a different person, all in an effort to hit further and hit harder. And true to his word, he emerged from lockdown between 10 and 20 kilograms heavier and added 20 yards to his average drive, becoming the biggest hitter on the 
golf tour. Now, Bryson DeChambeau is a bit of an unusual golf player. He's courted controversy by taking a protractor to golf competitions. He's used this slightly weird side saddle uh, putter. And in the stuffy world of golf, I'm I'm told that this type of behaviour doesn't always go down great. But the real hallmark of his golf is that he locks his arms and he whacks the ball really, really far, which is about as basic as it gets, really. Now, in 2020, DeChambeau's uh, 322-yard average drive was about 26 above 26 yards above the average of everyone else. And he's basically realised that what you lose in accuracy, you make up with in distance. And using that te- technique, he's won eight PGA Tour wins. And in 2020, he won the US Open. There's one video in particular that really highlights this. Uh, a few- a couple, about a month ago, he was playing at the Arnold Palmer Invitational in Florida. Uh, and the sixth hole on that course is a par five that curves around the lake. So the tee's on one side and the hole's on the opposite side across the lake. And what golfers are supposed to do, you know, in the minds of the course designers, is to basically go anti-clockwise around the lake, playing three or four shots to get round to the hole. What DeChambeau did, instead of doing that, he stood on the tee and then he basically turned through 90 degrees and just smashed the ball right over the lake. And this is an amazing video because it completely upends the expectations of the crowd and what the course designers had intended. But, you know, he's still playing within the rules of the game. He's still playing the game as it was intended. So why is this a problem, Matt? Isn't it just a bit like the other players complaining because Usain Bolt's running too fast or, you know, he's still golfing, right? Yeah, there is a little bit to that really it's like golfers are saying oh this guy does stuff differently even though like you say really it's within the rules of the game the the game is basically stay on the course get it into the hole as as in as few shots as possible how you do that doesn't really matter but it's definitely true to say that other professional players don't really like DeChambeau's approach so after his US Open win in 2020 uh, another professional golfer Matt Fitzpatrick said it's not a skill to hit the ball a long way the skill in my opinion is to hit the ball straight he's taking the skin out of it actually there's some echoes of you know the you know the current generation of tennis players have this strong um you know baseline game and you know other players to say well it's all about you know it's follying it's all about being nimble around the court but actually this new generation has a very a different approach to the, the game also Rory McIlroy another um, you know top golfer says he's found a way to do it whether that's bad or good for the game I don't know it's just not the way I saw this tournament being played talking about the US Open and really DeChambeau's win at the 2020 US Open reignited this age-old debate in golf. So advances in equipment technology, diet and fitness and data analysis have added about 100 yards to the average driving distance of elite male players over the last 100 years. And course designers have responded by making courses longer and narrower. But the question is, are these courses at risk of being overpowered? And is golf about to just become a game of brute force where driving as far as you, as far as possible just becomes the you know the factor of whether someone's a winner or not now this isn't a, a, a situation that's, that's unique to golf right we've seen that over the last century in other sports swimming running football performances getting better players getting fitter and stronger and smarter and and just getting better and better over time but when it happens in something like for the 400 meters there's not really a whole lot that the organizers can do about it same in swimming you know they can ban certain types of equipment but the uniqueness of golf means that the organisers do have more control over the environment that the sport is played in. So they can try and push back against this brute force or, you know, players getting stronger um, by, as you say, Matt, changing the design of the course and making the courses longer. 
Yeah, that's right. And we've really seen this in the evolution of some golf courses. So let's take the the third course at Medina Country Club in Illinois as an example. So it's hosted three US Opens as well as a bunch of other championships. And in 2012, it hosted the Ryder Cup. So at the first of its US Opens in 1975, the course was just under 7,000 yards. I hope all our listeners know how far a yard is, because I have to say, not being used to golf length measurements, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to visualise a yard exactly. Maybe someone can chip in and tell me exactly how far a yard is. But um, back then, so 1975, it was 7,000 yards long, and a score of three over par was enough to you know top the leaderboard and win the competition. And those were the days of wooden clubs and, and balls that were kind of uh, wound around this this core um fast forward to 1919 15 15 years later and the u.s open returned to medina by then the course had lengthened by 200 yards and players were using you know much more modern clubs metal heads much more like the equipment that you would um recognize today and then the winner won the tournament at eight under par in 1999 nine years later the course had got even longer it was seven and a half thousand yards but even then scores were still tumbling so tiger woods back then uh shrugged off this extra distance and won with a score of 11 under par now take this all the way to 2006 in the pga championship there's another redesign stretching the course to 7560 yards but still that score kept tumbling so then tiger woods won with a score of 18 under par and since then there's been even more distance added to the course but the amount of shots that it takes to beat this course just keeps coming down so in 2019 there's a tournament and justin thomas won with what was seen as quite an absurd score at the time of 25 under par, including 11 under par in just a single round. So courses are getting longer and longer, but the, uh, you know, the amount of shots it takes to beat these courses are getting shorter and shorter. So it, it seems like course design just isn't keeping pace with how far these golfers can hit. You asked how long a yard is. Um, you're about two yards long, Matt Reynolds. So a yard <laughs> is a yard is about three feet okay so should we convert this to matt reynolds length that's, yeah so that'd be easier right that would be on a so seven thousand yards would be three and a half thousand matt reynolds's laid end to end that's a lot no one yeah no one could would want to see that anyway as you were so matt the point you've just made is basically that although they're lengthening the courses it's not really working because the scores are falling at a faster rate than the sport's getting harder um now you might argue that there's not really a problem with this, except the logical end point of it is that players getting a hole in one on every hole and you see a situation like you've got in, um, and I'm sure people don't watch as much of this as I do, professional 10-pin bowling where players get a strike on basically every ball. Um, and I'm guessing that's a situation that play- they want to avoid where it just becomes about smashing it as close to the pin as possible with one stroke and then rolling it in with the second stroke. So what are the authorities doing about this? They they've also got this conundrum where they can't really make courses much longer than they are right now without making them basically impossible for non-pros to play you know the rest of the year yeah exactly and governing bodies are in this kind of slightly difficult position where they're seeing the traditions of the game slightly change and they're not sure how much they want to keep it as it was but risk putting off new uh, new supporters and players or to um you know Im- you know Im- embrace this kind of new style so in 2020 golf's governing body has published this report that's called distance insights and basically they found what all of us had more or less worked out by looking at you know looking at 
how the courses have changed. They've seen a steady upward drive in driving distances, which is caused by a long-term improvement in players' athleticism and technique. And this is punctuated by much steeper periods of increase that tended to coincide with you know, innovations in equipment, such as drivers with titanium faces or golf balls with solid cores. And basically, this report concluded that it's all about finding a balance between keeping the traditions of the sport, so you know, the technique, the precision, with allowing innovation. So really, this report said that we know there's a problem we know that you know there's kind, of, there's kind of tension in golf but we've got to try and find a way to allow people to get better and allow the sport to evolve without completely you know overriding what we've got especially if you think some of the most famous golf courses are really old you think about st andrews they're not very capable of being redesigned wholly to become much longer so you know, there's, this, there's this risk that these um, very historic golf courses might become outgrown as the sport changes yeah, I think the equipment point is really interesting. We saw this in, in swimming and uh, athletics to a lesser extent where there was a period in the mid-2000s, maybe slightly later, where swimmers were wearing these kind of full-body suits that were super streamlined and records just kept tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. And eventually the governing body were like, actually, we're not going to let you do that anymore. You know, We're not going to let you use this equipment because it's giving you such an unfair advantage that it's it's basically completely wrecking the sport. A similar thing is going on in marathon running at the moment where you've got these kind of shoes that return much more energy to the to the runner. And it, if you look at the records that have been set, a lot of them have been set wearing a specific pair of shoes lately. Um, but golf's quite unique because it gets so much revenue from equipment manufacturers and sponsors. And it's not necessarily in the sport's interest to cut off a lucrative source of sponsorship by saying okay well you know Titleist or ping or whoever your latest innovation that you're selling to amateurs is not no longer going to be allowed to be used by the professionals because it's too good right I, i don't see the golfing authorities doing something like that there's also this you know we're talking about golf on the wired podcast right dechambeau whether you agree with his approach or not is clearly a draw for audiences you know he's bringing in interest from other people he's bringing in younger players big driving grabs the headlines so it's a really difficult conundrum for golf uh, authorities to deal with and also i think it's important to make the point that it's not as if he's winning everything right you know he he can hit it longer than everyone else but that's not the only determinant of success because otherwise he would win everything so one of the things we looked at in this piece is how much difference matt does being able to hit the ball further actually make to your chances of winning yeah, exactly. And funny enough, the, the research that's done some work for this is actually a professor at Columbia Business School in the US, Mark Brody, who actually studies financial markets, but he also happens to like golf. And several years ago, he designed this statistical measure that he calls strokes gained, which basically assesses how good a shot is compared with the rest of the field. So using this enormous database of strokes and this new metric, Brody calculated that an extra 20 yards off the tee gives a player an advantage equivalent to one tenth of a stroke. So over a single round, a big hitter like DeChambeau shaves off the equivalent of 1.4 shots as a result of his greater distance alone. So this seems to suggest that all other things aside if you just hit longer then overall over the course of a you know over the course of a game over the course of a round you'll end up uh, making fewer shots than everyone else because you gain those 20 yards every time so that kind of adds up over time right but if the you know 1996 adam sandler movie happy gilmore taught us anything it's that you know there's a trade-off between distance and accuracy right there's no good smashing the ball 400 yards if you smash it 20 degrees off the right line and it ends up in a car park yeah exactly so the other side of this equation is 
if you hit the ball harder than you ought to, there's probably going to be some decline in accuracy. So the question is, does that decline in accuracy, is that made up for by hitting it longer? Because obviously, if you hit the ball harder, you have slightly less control over where the, the ball ends up. So Brody calculated that missing a fairway resulted in a disadvantage of about 0.3 strokes per hole, which is a larger penalty than the advantage conferred by going 20 yards further. But actually, he found out that bombers and gougers, which is the kind of slightly pejorative term that's given to uh, these golfers that basically you know, hit big and maybe sacrifice a little bit uh, of accuracy. He, he found that these bombers and gouges weren't actually much worse than the rest of the field at hitting fairway. So they tended to end up only on one fewer fairway per round. And that meant that the balance of bombing and gouging was a net advantage of 1.1 strokes per round. So really that shows us that this dichotomy between, oh, you hit big and it's ugly and you just go wherever and that, you know, your sacrifice and accuracy is, is perhaps a little bit of a stereotype. These players are, are perhaps being able to combine accuracy with speed, uh, you know, with distance, and there might be a little bit more skill than people are giving them credit for going on there. This isn't like a, this isn't a revolution in the sense that not everyone has adopted this approach. There was uh, in athletics a, a famous moment in high jump where uh, a guy called Dick Fosbury ran up to the bar and flopped over it backwards. And you know, within a year, everyone had adopted that approach because it was so much better than what they were doing before, which was this kind of awkward scissor thing over the bar. And, and now high jump is just done in this completely new way. But this isn't that, right? It's not as if everyone has adopted this bombing and gouging approach. As I said earlier, even with the greater distance, it's not a guarantee of victory or even, you know, particularly successful results. We published this piece just before the Masters, which was won by a Japanese golfer called Hideki Matsuyama, who's not a particularly big hitter. DeChambeau didn't do particularly well in the Masters this year. So this isn't a complete revolution. It's not going to change the face of golf forever but what's going to be really interesting to see is how this develops over the next few years with equipment that continues to improve nutrition that continues to improve and it'll be interesting to see whether other players adopt this big hitting approach and how golf course designers react as someone who sort of watches golf every so often the masters the Ryder cup the us open there's something quite exciting about there being a real variety in the field, right? So there are players who have very, very good short games. There are players who are really, really good around the green. And then there are players like DeChambeau who stand at the tee and absolutely thump the thing. And that's really, really exciting because, as we saw, I think DeChambeau came like tied 50th or something um, at Augusta. So, you know, it's no guarantee of victory. And it means that people can win the game in, in lots of different ways. And, and that's the same in tennis, right? Even though we've got players like Rafa Nadal who hit the ball incredibly, incredibly hard, we also have players like Roger Federer who, yes, hit the ball incredibly hard, but also have a really, really good net game. Federer is a brilliant volleyer of the ball. So, yes, I understand the concern that the purity of the game, if we want to call it that, risks going away. But this is sports science, right? Players are able to adapt their bodies how they see fit, use the equipment that's available, and that variety is what makes sport exciting. I tend to think these things actually tend to balance out naturally over time so if you live if you're playing tennis in an area where everyone stands at the baseline and smacks it back and forth then actually if you're really good at doing drop volleys and little you know little chips then you can get an advantage in that era and you always tend to get players who go against the grain and find success that way and then they get imitators and then the whole mode of the sport kind of shifts in baseball there's knuckleballers who kind of throw this weird kind of swinging strike and they go through eras of popularity where 
batters kind of forget how to play against them because it hasn't been one for so long. So I think given enough time, the situation probably will sort itself out and you'll see other types of players rising to the fore and, and that variety that you talk about, James. But it would be interesting if, if other sports had the the weapon that golf has at its disposal to change the course on which things are played, right? So we could say that Kevin De Bruyne is way, way, way too good at finding the top corner from 30 yards. So we're going to make the goal 10% smaller and let goalkeepers wear comically large gloves or something, right? Or springy boots. But we're not going to do that. Whereas in golf, they can kind of do that to a degree. I mean, you look at the conditions that players were playing um, in at Augusta some of the bunkers are like six foot deep plus these courses are impossible for and well they're not impossible for amateurs to play they're very very hard for amateurs to play so there is such a difference between elite golf and everyday golf and that's maybe a little bit problematic when people want to go and play these very famous courses right it, it's almost more like rather than thinking of it as a sport like football or tennis where the field is the same regardless of whether you're a professional or an amateur in terms of the rules and the regulations around it in golf it's maybe more like formula one where there are courses that only an expert can play but then that's not really practical or pragmatic from you know at the point of view of st andrews if you're only hosting a competition once a year and then you've got this kind of golf course taking up loads of land that no one else can use for like 51 weeks of the year it's not really feasible so they do i guess need to strike this kind of balance it's a fascinating story link in the show notes as always we'd love to get your thoughts podcast at wired.co.uk now you might think that we're a podcast about technology but this week i'm afraid we're a podcast about golf and dogs so you might have noticed that lots of people use lockdown as an opportunity to get a dog or more specifically a puppy inquiries through the kennel club in the uk um their puppy portal which is apparently a thing increased 140 percent year on year during the first lockdown in the spring of 2020 my local park is overrun by incredibly cute furry things but now restrictions are being lifted these cute furry things are in for a bit of a nasty surprise when the owners start abandoning them for such joys as the pub remember that and maybe in the coming weeks and months the office matt burgess yeah so over the last few days we've been speaking to some animal welfare and behavioral experts who are concerned that as uh, covid restrictions loosen up uh, in the uk and presumably around the world as well it could have a negative impact on pets who suddenly find their routine turned upside down so In the UK's various lockdowns, many of our pets have got used to us being around uh, to interact with them 24-7. Many people, uh, particularly office-based people, have worked from home for more than a year now. And in the case of puppies that have been brought during the lockdown, it could be all that they've ever known, really. So um, suddenly expecting them uh, to spend a bunch of time on their own as we go out to enjoy our new freedom, such as you say, the pub, uh, and heading back to work could result in a lot of um, separation-related behaviours as dogs struggle to adjust to the new environments that they're finding themselves in. And basically, as we head out of restrictions, uh, the dogs uh, that we have are heading into their own version of lockdown. Uh, They're suddenly not able to socialise with people in the way that they've gotten used to over the past year and a bit. And as I say, particularly in the case of puppies, it may be all all they've known for their entire lives. 
This is a bit like the adverts that we got in the UK a few years ago. Maybe they're still on TV. I don't really watch a lot of broadcast TV. A dog is for life, not just for Christmas. A dog is for life, not just for lockdown. So there are people that have made quite big lifestyle changes. They might have moved house, as you say, got got a puppy or a cat or something. And that worked for the last year, but it might not work beyond that. And there's some science behind all this too, right? We've bred dogs for thousands of years to form close bonds with humans. That's a great way of ensuring that they're loyal companions, but it isn't so good if you get them used to a world of lockdown and then you disappear and shut them in the house all on their own. Exactly. Um, so by their very nature, dogs are pack animals and they're very social creatures. I, just from anecdotally, the people that I've seen, uh, particularly in my social circles and things like that, who have adopted puppies over the last uh, year or so have been uh, very much sort of fawning all over them. I've seen people with puppies that are, sort of, seem to be very sort of attached to them and, and sort of every every post that they make on Instagram is about is about their new puppy and just it cuddled up to them and things like that. Um, and it's basically that that is part of sort of like how they've been bred and their nature but also because of what sort of the situation that we found themselves in and and puppies and dogs themselves can very much be creatures of habit they're if they're only ever exposed to this one type of environment in this case sort of lockdown conditions uh where they're with their human owners every minute of the day that's what they'll be used to um so daniel mills a professor of uh, veterinary behavior medicine at the university of lincoln uh, has been looking into the effect of lockdown on dogs over the last year or so um, and the results are still uh, a fairly early stage they're still preliminary and there's still some work to do but uh, daniel says that the initial uh, analysis suggests that lockdown isn't necessarily causing more dogs to struggle with separation behavioral issues but it's making it worse for those that were already predisposed to separation uh, problems um, so obviously dogs are all different and some will be totally fine and not really care about a change in their routine uh, when people start going back to work and, uh, and and doing things differently but others might struggle a lot and uh, like typical behaviors for this will will probably see dogs start crying or scratching at the door if you leave the room and never mind the house i'm imagining a lot of slightly annoyed dogs so other than scratching and generally barking and whining how is this sort of behavior gonna manifest itself are we in for months of that kind of behavior and people who are you know if you're if you're in a flat and your neighbor got a dog are you gonna have to put up with that dog barking for hours every day because it's lonely are we going to end up with a nation of sad, lonely dogs? I mean, there is, I guess there is the potential to it, but I think that the behaviours are all going to be sort of very different in, in the dogs that people have. So, uh, in a lot of the sort of chat and, and reporting around uh, these types of issues, people talk about separation anxiety a lot, but it's probably more accurate to, to, to term it and uh, separate as something around the lines of separation related behavior because it's not necessarily just fear or anxiety that could uh, manifest manifest itself in these situations um so mills says that a lot of the behavior uh, can be a result of frustration instead of anxiety um and common signs that your dog might be struggling include obviously sort of uh vocalizing it it's it's uh its situation so it could be barking could be whining while you're away uh which you which you obviously might hear uh, if you leave and return or or get told about by the neighbors um and other issues could be sort of going to the, the toilet in the house destroying things such as, and scratching at the door or chewing on furniture um but there are some more 
subtle behaviors that you might only notice if you have a camera set up at home. So um, your dog might be pacing around a lot or engaging in a lot of repetitive behavior. Uh, they might be trembling or drooling more than usual. And there are lots of different signs essentially that uh, there could be some sort of like separation uh, related behaviors that have changed. I guess the good news is we've still got a while to go before we return to the office. And even given that, it might just be for one or two days a week. And even then, another lockdown might be looming. Who knows? So what can new dog owners do to prepare their pandemic pooches for life beyond lockdown? Yeah, exactly. There is potentially quite a bit of time uh, for people to get their their pets ready for uh, these changes. And I think that the expert that we've been speaking to have very much said that the most important thing to do is start now before it's too late, essentially. Uh, so it might take a while to get your dog used to, to a new routine. Um, so if you leave it till the weekend before uh, you're going out or going away on holiday or something like that, and then expect them to deal with you being out the house for several hours at a time, you're pretty much setting yourself up for a disaster, really. Um, so you want to start uh, to tackle these behaviors or even look at these behaviors in, in quite a small way. So this could be uh, stuff as simple as try leaving your dog for a short while while you go into another room and gradually build up that time. Uh, or you can obviously, if you have one, go and spend time in your garden or a car uh, just away from from, uh, from the dog for a little while. And really sort of the experts in this area say it's, it's about moving at your dog's pace. Uh, so some dogs may take longer to adjust than others. Uh, some might adjust quite quickly some might not even need any adjustment time at all um and, and when you leave your dog they say uh it, it can be helpful to try and make make it fun for them uh, so maybe giving them a treat or teaching them uh, a signal that tells them it's it's time that they're they're going to spend some time on their own and not be with with their humans um so one suggestion that some people have come up with is to is to hang something on the wall when you're not going to interact with them so they understand uh, there is something different and that now it's time uh, the situation has changed essentially uh, so it's all about that sort of like pre-planning and training and just trying to uh, sort of ease them into a different type of circumstance um and also it's it's sort of recommended that it's a good idea to try and shape your practice and whatever you're going to do around what you're going to be doing when the world does turn back to normal at any point so if you're going to be going out into mornings or um or going to work at certain times or things like that it's, it's useful to try and get them into that routine around that time of day um and and obviously it goes without without saying that if you if you have got a puppy and, and are trying to do this you shouldn't be uh, necessarily leaving your dog for for longer than four hours and if if you need to do that you need to consider getting a dog sitter or a dog walker or using some sort of daycare uh setup all right, so I've actually got some experience of what happens when you don't do this. When I was a teenager, we got a Springer Spaniel puppy called Meg, and my mum wasn't working at the time, so there's always somebody about the house. Meg was, as a lot of Springer Spaniels are, pretty energetic and sociable. And then after a couple of years, my mum goes back to work, and Meg absolutely loses it, but in a kind of quiet, sad way. So she started hiding in the spare room all the time. She put on a load of weight and looked depressed it was kind of a remarkably human manifestation of sadness it was it was weird so in the end we had to put her up for adoption um, and she found a new home with a family that had a big house with a big garden and i think a couple of um a couple of people were in the house all day every day so it was a happy end of sorts for a sad story but it goes to show what happens when you don't take these things into consideration and you kind of think well it's a dog it's fine so people shouldn't be doing that right 
yeah, I think it is thinking about the sort of the welfare of the animals and everything as well. And it might be a similar situation to what many people will find themselves in in the coming months. So a really sudden switch from being home all the time to being away most of the time. And, and that's why I guess it's important to uh, really practice this and build it up and on, on the same sort of anecdote total uh, levels of one of the dogs that I grew up with uh, with my family when I was growing up uh, when when she was a puppy um, she uh, was very attached to my mum and when my mum was out in the day she used to sort of whine and, and sort of like sit on the steps waiting for her to come back in um, but she eventually sort of grew out of that and had some training to grow out of that um, and now uh, now doesn't do it and is 17 and is asleep most of the time but in your in your case James it sounds like the dog was in a similar way pretty particularly attached to your mum, which can, which can obviously happen. Um, and particularly if, uh, if there is sort of like, uh, one person maybe doing a lot of caring for, uh, for an animal and they can become quite closely attached to them and more, uh, more sort of reliant on one person. Um, but yeah, sort of some of the, some of the people that we've spoken to through our reporting around this also say that, uh, ultimately there will be rare situations where you've tried everything and you may uh, find your life is no longer compatible with uh, a new puppy or a dog and and it can be in some uh, some cases even though a very ta- very sad and uh, horrible situation it might be the kindest thing to do to find a new home for that dog and provide them um, and a place that can provide them with everything that they need um, and and I think that during the reporting around this uh chloe jackson who works at the bassey dogs and cats home says that if you really can't provide a good home anymore then the best thing to do is actually work with animal rescue centers and uh, official organizations because uh, they're obviously trained in in dealing with uh with animals anxiety and other type of issues that they might have uh, and rehoming privately can uh, essentially sort of uh, amplify some of these behaviors and make and make the situations worse in some some cases so if if people are uh potentially struggling with with this and there is sort of no other option um it's best to get, try and go through the official channels and and um yeah go to a sort of rescue centers uh, if, if that is the case but obviously hopefully for a lot of people that will not have to be the case this is all really good advice but there's there's an elephant in the room or rather there's a cat in the room what about cats what about lockdown cats matt yeah i don't think I mean, I think there has been a bit of an increase in um, in the, the amount of cats that have been adopted, but it definitely, I do think it is. Uh, I think puppies have been the big the big boom based on sort of from what I've seen. But cats are not Im- immune to a lot of the issues as well. Uh, obviously, cats are pretty different to dogs in the way that they behave and they can sort of vary very individually as well Uh, and while some cats may be relieved that we're sort of heading back to the office and leaving them alone to get their get their space again so some others may struggle with the change in routine Um, they're not bonded to us in the same way as dogs but some of them will dislike unpredictable changes uh, in pretty typical cat behavior to be honest um so again it's if if that is a scenario that could happen the advice is to try and change routines gradually and uh if your if if your cat has got used to uh getting too much of what it wants when it asks for it um then i think that the advice really is just to try and change those behaviors and routines in in a sort of slow uh way essentially matt burgess with more dog advice than you could ever need or ever expect from the Wired UK podcast. Did you get a dog during lockdown, specifically a puppy? Are you concerned about heading back into the big wired world? Not the wired world, no, the wide world, um, and leaving your dog 
alone at home. Do get in touch, podcast at wired.co.uk with your experience of adopting puppies during lockdown and dealing with changes to routine. Or get in touch with us about anything else. It doesn't just have to be dogs. In the unbox this week, Amit, we had an email from Dan about cheese. That's right. Dan says that he loves the podcast, listens every week while out on a walk, uh, which is lovely to hear. He says, on the story about vegan cheese, we are right in saying that it's just not the same. He recommends Violife, which tastes okay normally and goes very gooey when melted. So that's uh, capturing one of the missing textures. He says he's not vegan, but he has an intolerance to dairy. So the possibility of a proper Italian meal without milk derived cheese would be amazing. Matt Reynolds is our resident vegan. Violife, yay or nay? Yeah, I actually have some Via Life in the fridge right now. Via Life is okay. It's probably about as good as you know supermarket vegan cheese goes, but I still it's still not got that texture for me. And I do think the gooiness can can be a little bit weird without without that kind of taste. It's it tastes a bit plasticky. I would say the best thing if you can't eat cheese for whatever reason is forget about the texture but just get some nutritional yeast because at least it has the flavor the kind of umami uh, rounded out punch of um uh cheese and you can make a good vegan parmesan with cashew nuts and nutritional yeast and some garlic powder google it and then that's kind of nice to put on top so i think forget about cheese just get nutritional yeast because that's as good as it's going to get one of the things I miss most about being in the office, it's been over a year now since we were all together, is Matt getting his little tub of nutritional yeast out at lunchtime and sprinkling it over whatever he's having for lunch that day. Yeah, I mean, nutritional yeast, it really does go on everything. If, you, if you've been deprived of cheese for, for several years, as I have, you'll, you'll end up sometimes just nutritional yeast on its own is all you need. If you don't want to email us about dogs, can you please email us about nutritional yeast or vegan cheeses? We've got an international audience of thousands of people. I'm sure we can track down the best vegan cheese in the world. And if you've got any particularly good vegan recipes for cheese replacements, then get in touch. Why not? Podcast at wired.co.uk. One more email this week from Melody, who's in Western Australia. She says she loves the show and would love to give us a nice review, but neither Spotify nor Google Podcasts have an option to rate shows. It's quite right. It sucks, but um, if you do listen to our show on a podcast platform that does let you leave a review, um, basically do you own an iPhone, then please do give us five stars if you think we deserve it. We'll love you forever thanks so much for listening this week as always we'll be back again same time next week have a good one bye 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 bye